And I'm joined by my friends, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, along with a few other things. Tom Price, uh, adjunct professor of systematic theology and Christian ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Great. Well, thanks, guys. Today is my day, and uh, the subject of the day is for me to choose, and I've decided to talk about C.S. Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft which is uh, a bit of a departure from things we've been talking about recently, but in another way, not a departure at all. It's more or less a kind of working out of many of the things that we've been discussing. I wrote something uh, a number of years ago for Touchstone Magazine entitled Lost and Found in the Cosmos, the the Alternate and Alternative Worlds of H.P. Lovecraft and C.S. Lewis. That particular essay was pretty widely disseminated in both fandoms, both the you know the, the fans among the fans of C.S. Lewis and the, among the fans of H.P. Lovecraft. And believe it or not, there's some crossover. There are people who are fans of both. And uh, what inspired me to write the piece was uh, having uh, read H.P. Lovecraft's Penguin Classic collection of short stories. Um, the it occurred to me that as I was reading them, you know, and I was a, a neophyte when it came to Lovecraft, but a, a longtime reader of C.S. Lewis, as I read the Lovecraft stories, I thought to myself, my goodness, everything that C.S. Lewis wrote seems to be a response to a, or a rejoinder to this stuff that Lovecraft is writing. <laughs> And consequently, I, I, I felt like uh, the symmetries were just so remarkable that I needed to write about it. I actually got in touch with the Wade Center at uh, Wheaton College and asked them to do some research for me to see if they could dig up any evidence of, concerning whether or not C.S. Lewis had read Lovecraft, because they were contemporaries. And we do know that Lewis did not only write for the pulps, but wrote for the pulps, which always uh, makes people who have a kind of snooty attitude aghast. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, wrote for, you know, amazing stories or (laughs) fantasy and science fiction? Yes, he did. And he read the stories and he enjoyed them. And an experiment in criticism, one of his books, goes into, you know, some of his thoughts on those genres. But anyway, so I wrote this. And what I'd like to do now is just read a little bit from it and then uh, invite Glenn and Tom to respond to what I write, uh, or what I wrote, and uh, then we can kind of take it from there. But in the opening to the essay, I talk a bit about the parallels, the remarkable parallels between C.S. Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft in terms of their lives, both that experienced losses as, as, as when they were children. Uh, Lewis lost his mother, Lovecraft lost his father, uh, both married Jewish admirers. That's weird. You know, they we're talking about the 1920s and 30s here, and 40s and so forth. And uh, so, and then they lost those wives for different reasons. Um, now, Lovecraft was very different in one respect from Lewis. Lovecraft was an autodidact. He was something of a recluse, uh, and he died of cancer and starvation. I mean, this was a man that uh, kind of lived in his mother's basement and put it into the modern frame of sort of a modern setting. 
And uh, kind of like a pre-millennial. <laughs> that's right. That's, right. <laughs> that's a play, play on terms. Play on terms for those people in the other. That's, right. that's right. You're living now into Lovecraft's example. So anyway, <laughs> that's that's classic. That's right. oh, but anyway, so Lovecraft, you know, he he dies. Uh, basically a nobody and and what's really beautiful in in a in a weird way uh is the dedication of his friends hmm. uh he had a an enormous circle of of correspondence that he uh, that uh, were friends of his um and after he died they wouldn't let him go and in fact one of his one of his friends established a publishing house dedicated to publishing his stuff <coughs> Arc House publishers hmm. And uh, that that sort of effort just and the persistence over time uh, ended up producing tremendous a tremendous harvest in terms of uh, his influence. And Was I'll that August Sterlitz? What's that? Was that August Sterlitz who did that? I don't know. I don't remember the name. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. But anyway, uh, it's a marvelous story. Now, Lewis, of course, was a very gregarious uh, and well-known man, even in his own lifetime. He had been on the cover of Time magazine, for goodness sake. So this was a guy that everybody knew about and was was uh, certainly an accomplishment. Although he did have his detractors at Oxford. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, so now the, the article that I wrote... Uh, sort of lays out the cultural milieu in which they both wrote. And within that milieu, there is this sort of growing awareness among the population, you know, in Europe and in the United States, of a uh, sort of sort of alien worlds out there, worlds that they could be looked at through telescopes, could be speculated about. And this otherness, so this alien nature to these worlds presented certain challenges conceptually to people or intellectually to people. How are we to think about this? Uh, and so Lovecraft and Lewis, coming at the problem from, from radically different perspectives, uh, produce a body of fiction, bodies of fiction, uh, sort of exploring what this could mean. So let me go ahead and read a little bit from my article here. And um, in this, I'll get into what Lovecraft has to say. So here's from the article, quote, When he was a teenager, being Lovecraft, Lovecraft dabbled in astronomy and was even published uh, and even published on the subject in newspapers such as the uh, Patuxet Gleaner and the Providence Tribune. Huge <laughs> circulations, I can tell you. Uh, there is something boyish and endearing in his reflections on the subject. Less endearing is the lesson he felt astronomy taught us about man's place in the cosmos. In a letter to a friend in 1927, he explained how this lesson informed his approach to storytelling. Quote, All my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity in the vast cosmos at large. To me, there is nothing but puerility in a tale in which the human form and local human passions and conditions and standards are depicted as native to other worlds and universes. So he would have hated Star Trek. <laughs> and going on, back to my article. For Lovecraft, man is not a microcosm, a Rosetta Stone to the cosmos, as medieval men believe, nor is he the pinnacle of creation as Bible teaches. For him, astronomy taught that man couldn't even think of the universe as his home. If anything, 
Man was an anomaly, a microscopic and trivial bubble of consciousness in an infinite sea of indifference. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, Lovecraft believed that the universe gave us no warrant for faith in God. And there, just on that point, because there is a kind of irony going on there, is he's interpreting a certain meaning of the universe and basically that it's meaningless. <laughs> yes. And so there is this kind of, this odd irony that I think materialism deals with, you yeah. know, or ha- has inherent in it. Yeah. Well, taking it a bit further, in a lot of ways he strikes me as being, knowing what's coming up in the article, having read it before, <laughs> Um, he strikes me as being almost a kind of weird existentialist mm-hmm. in that each species, each thing that's out there has its own unique way of seeing and understanding the universe that is perfectly appropriate to itself but has no bearing on anyone else. Mm-hmm. So it, it's almost like the existentialist creating meaning and authenticity for himself. I describe existentialism as nihilism light, <laughs> L-I-T-E, right. Right. because, yeah. you know, um, rather than, ha- than having Nietzsche and Ubermensch, you've got the individual who creates his own Ubermensch. Well, in this case, what you've got are their, your own species and your own things out there that create their own meaning that is completely incommensurable with everybody else. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of problems with this, if you think about it. And one of the stories that I'll be addressing a little later is entitled Color Out of Space, which is a very good story in one sense, but is a, it, it's a, it's a, a problem in another. It just doesn't work at a, at a scientific level, let alone a metaphysical But anyway, uh, I'll read a little more here because he gets a little more, um, uh, explicit with regard to his contempt for for, the, for belief in God. Back to my article and another quote from him. Quote, I certainly can't see any sensible position to assume aside from that of complete skepticism tempered by a leaning toward that which existing evidence makes most probable. In other words, kind of positivistic. Kind of hmm. Back to the quote. All I can say is that I think it is damned unlikely that anything like a central cosmic will or a spirit world or an eternal survival of personality exist. They are the most preposterous and unjustified of all the guesses that can be made about the universe. And I am not enough of a hair splitter to pretend that I don't regard them as errant and negligible moonshine. <laughs> In theory, I'm an agnostic, but pending the appearance of rational evidence I must be classed practically and provisionally as an atheist. <laughs> so he was a little bit uh, guarded there, but yeah. he was an atheist. Was and tied to his yes. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Don't now, hold back. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. And there's just an odd, you know, an odd kind of, you know, reference to the significance of rationality. Yeah. <laughs> within that. That's right. So well, how is this grounded? How do you justify that? You know, it just doesn't go there as a given. It doesn't. And and um, before you jump into, you know, you're going to move into the second step sure. in that. But but it's maybe something to return to because Lewis was someone who very much valued, you know, our rational nature. Right. And and so here you have two people. A similar time, writing in, in you know in similar arenas, right. and yet you're having the value of rationality, but it is placed within a setting that are completely at odds. So just kind of kind of be mindful of as we get get over to Lewis. 
Yeah, that, I think that's really great. I think it's important to keep in mind. I want to talk a little bit about aesthetics at this point because I think most people, when they think about an aesthetic, if they even are familiar with the idea, consider it to be sort of frivolous, uh, sort of like uh, you know, home and garden television and how to decorate your house kind of stuff. Um, and they don't sort of have insight into how an aesthetic is in some sense an expression of a metaphysic, some kind of understanding of reality. Unless they're in the feng shui, then it's okay. <laughs> right. But anyway, so uh, Lovecraft, instead of writing tracks promoting atheism, he wrote stories. And there was an aesthetic that was informed by his atheism and his, what he called cosmicism, sort of this understanding of the otherness of, of sort of the universe and our being unat home or not at home in it. So let me just uh, go back to my paper here or my essay and read a little, bit, a little more. Quote, an aesthetic expresses an outlook. You could say that art is uh, an outlook frozen and shared. If it were pointless, there would be no reason to talk about it seriously. Lovecraft was up to something very serious. He wanted to change the way his readers thought about the world and by implication themselves. Lovecraft believed he possessed greater insight into the nature of things than better adjusted, healthier people. And he was an unhealthy and maladjusted person. And his life bears that out. But back to my point. Quote, he took dark comfort in breaking the news to the rest of us that we are, uh, we are all as strange and out of place as he felt he was. He wanted to take his readers outside, and that's, uh, the word outside is a capital O, outside. Or perhaps better, to bring the outside inside. Here's Lovecraft from yet another letter. Quote, to achieve the essence of real externality, whether of time or space or dimension, one must forget that such things as organic life, good and evil, love and hate, and all such local attributes of a negligible and temporary race called mankind <laughs> have any existence at all. The only human characters, uh, only human characters must have human qualities, but when we cross the line to the boundless and hideous unknown, the shadow haunted outside, we must remember to leave our humanity and terrestrialism at the threshold. Now you might, now you might take that and say, well, you know, he was a weird dude and he wrote weird stories, but Lovecraft was a major influence on Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, China Melville, He's one of the most influential sort of subterranean authors that we have. His, pop, his, his impact on popular culture is enormous. So even if you at home listening to this podcast or in your car listening to this podcast think, ha ha, Lovecraft was such an idiot, I want you to know that even though this may be the first time you've ever heard of him, you have felt his influence in a myriad of ways through Batman, Arkham, the very town of Arkham in the... Batman universe is named for yeah, is named for Lovecraft. Huh. Uh, so many things that you sort of take for granted uh, and uh, are unaware of have their origins in Lovecraft's imagination. What I find really intriguing about this is his description of the universe or the things out there as being wholly other. Yeah, is actually a description of God. Yes, <laughs> that. Um, 
the, the, what he missed, yeah, he missed a lot of things in there. Mm -hmm. right. But one of the key things that he missed is that the terrestrial and the transcendent may be utterly different from each other, but the terrestrial is a finite echo of the infinite. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that Lovecraft was correct in the totally otherness of God, but he missed the idea of personhood, he missed the idea of love, of shalom, of all of these kinds of things, mm -hmm. and he missed the idea that the universe was actually a reflection, dim and in a mirror, of the God who created it. Right. I think you're so, right. So he has, he has a, a proper sense of transcendence, but he views it with horror rather than with love and appreciation. Right. And I think you could, you could argue that he kind of saw through um, the, the kind of veil that was promoted in a lot of Christianity that saw God as sheer will. And maybe he just threw off the kind of divinity language and started to understand it in this in this sense of, of uh, um, undefined horror <laughs> at, at, at the, this notion. But what's interesting yeah. is is there is also if you go to his his anthropology or his his conception of the human being is in in a sense he wants to do what a lot of people have done you know post enlightenment sort of you know kind of humble humanity by positioning right. humanity and humanity's you know significance by placing it within this this more you know almost dignified larger creation right. and there there's a plus there because i think sometimes when we focus on sort of the the creation account that humanity is the pinnacle of the creation and therefore is to to you know to name it and and have dominion Therefore, it kind of we oftentimes interpret that and relativize everything else. Mm -hmm. So, in order to at least share in the dignity of everything else, he wants to kind of proportion that. Right. But what he ends up doing is losing, of course, the 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 imago dei, the, the the human being made in the image of God, and the relation of that to the rest of the cosmological structure. Right. And so, he's definitely working with he's he's definitely aware of trying to flatten out the human in relationship to the rest of the creation. Yeah, I think you and, you know, Tom, you and Glenn have identified some things that I, I've thought about, too. Having a little bit of insight into, or a little, a little bit of, of, of uh, knowledge about his, you know, his family environments and so forth gives me uh, another sort of, uh, sort of a way to approach the problem. One is he was surrounded by women. You know, at a time when sort of Victorian Christianity was uh, the dominant sort of outlook. Hmm. You know, we're talking about, you know, cherubs who are babies and cute. Fat <laughs> little babies with wings. That's right. That's the sort of thing that, that he was surrounded by. This was Christianity. It was a Victorian um, and highly mollified, uh, bodlerized Christianity that didn't get... Uh, didn't seem to have much to, uh, use for Ezekiel or Isaiah's vision of God or the it was, Lord. It was almost temple. moralistic. Yeah, it was moralistic, more but, but also trite and sweet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. C.S. Lewis's comment that um, that 
you, the when an angel appears in scripture, its first words are almost invariably "fear not." <laughs> Whereas when a Victorian angel appears, you expect it to say "there, there." That's right. That's right. Or, or, and, and, and you know, and another thing, you know, even when we think about like Cupid. <laughs> you know, we, we t- have turned him into a little fat baby. But I think yeah. the Cupid of ancient Greece was not some fat little guy with a bow and arrow. I mean, he was a pretty significant character who could really mess up your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, anyway, but but I think you guys have a good sense of where Lovecraft is coming from. Can, can, I, can sure. I throw in one more thing? Oh, yeah. The other thing that he, of course, utterly misses is the significance of the Incarnation. Right. Which is the supreme statement of the significance, first of all, the physical universe, but then even beyond that of human beings. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think this gets to the sort of next thing that I, that I address in my article, and that's anthropological, it's anthropology. So, in, the, in a typical Lovecraftian story, what you have is a kind of progression of, of, of revelation in which the central character grows more and more aware of some horrible truth, either about the world that he's in, the situation that he's set in, or himself. So there are points where uh, the, uh, the main character discovers that he's descended from apes, or he's descended from sea monsters, or something like that. But almost in every case, what you have at the end of the story is the protagonist screaming and insane. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are a lot of people who find these to be very entertaining and enjoyable reads. <laughs> and culturally, yeah. culturally, they help make interpretation right. of current situations yeah, right, right. plausible. Now, to be to be uh, frank about it, I, I I've enjoyed a number of Lovecraft stories. Um, they, you know, he's got his strengths. There are there are ways in which he's just awful. Yes. <laughs> but there are other ways in which he's just really surpassingly good. He's much like George MacDonald, hmm. but almost a, a kind of a mirror of MacDonald. You know, because as Lewis said in his you know uh, his introduction to MacDonald and his anthology, uh, MacDonald was really bad at some points, but it's, where, where he was good, he was unsurpassed. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with Lovecraft, where he was bad he was just awful but where he was good you can't match him and where he was good is in this vocation of sort of shock when you encounter the other and this is why I think that we need to sort of explore the the nature of the sublime within the Christian faith because there are points particularly in the Old Testament but also in the New and in Revelation where you have these visions of the of, of, of this holy other, or pretty close to holy other, reality that just undoes you. It leaves you in the same kind of puddle of, of, of blubbering, you know, what shall I do-ness <laughs> that you know, your typical Lovecraft protagonist ends up in at the end of his stories. You know, an example, of course, is Isaiah, you know, chapter 6, you know, he sees the Lord in the temple and he cries, woe is me, you've got, a, you know, Ezekiel, you've got John in the, in the Revelation. These different episodes demonstrate that the sublime is a biblical category, but it relates to the 
to the transcendence of God, the mystery of God, the otherness of God. And the, uh, the thing that I think, maybe, maybe the thing, what I need to do at this point is, is just quickly define some, the sublime. So Edmund Burke wrote a, wrote a little treatise or essay. Edmund Burke was a, uh, a politician and a, uh, a kind of, Back in those days, you know, you, you became a moral philosopher in your spare Man time. Man of letters <laughs> without having the right. official official letter right. Right. conferred. Can you imagine a politician today writing something significant that, that people hundreds of years they later actually know what it was? <laughs> but anyway, Edmund did that sort of thing. But anyway, he wrote a piece entitled, or something in, uh, along the lines of uh, Beauty and the Sublime. And in that, he defines beauty... In much the same way that you would th define beauty, if all you had to use to define beauty was Mozart, you know, you've got synchronicity, you've got harmony, you've got uh, majesty, you've got all these different things that compose a beautiful object, or beautiful sound, or beautiful vision, or a beautiful work of art. They, 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 they reflect intelligence and insight, and there's a center of luminescence to them. Well, the sublime is also captivating, but not for the same reasons. The sublime has a, a captivating character to it because it's, because it's overwhelming and it's powerful. So like the Niagara Falls, from a distance, it's beautiful. Yeah. But up close, it's sublime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know it can crush you. You know it's indifferent to your to your fate. You know that uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. You can't take your eyes off it, and it makes you feel small. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sublime. Yeah. And I yeah. think that what Lovecraft is really good at yeah. is a sort of atheist take on the sublime. Yeah. Yeah. Now, whether or not he would put it that way, who knows. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I think I think that that's a good way of looking at what what Lovecraft is doing. Um, I should note my first encounter with Lovecraft was back in the '70s uh, with um, Night Gallery <laughs> and uh, Rod Serling. Yeah, right. Um, I started reading everything I could get my hands on by Lovecraft, and unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. Um, that wasn't a lot, but I think that that he is trying to. If if you want to get the essence of what he's doing, as near as I can tell, he's trying to force the reader to come to grips with a world that is much bigger than what we see, what much bigger than what we can perceive, much bigger than what we can understand. And that fundamentally is totally indifferent. Yes, that that's has, key. That's key. That has this power that you talked about with Niagara Falls to utterly crush us into nothing at a whim. Yep. But it doesn't even bother to take notice of us. That's right. Yeah, like we are with insects. Oh, or, or smaller. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, and, there, and there is a sort of metaphysical truth he's trying to reach towards, and I think that's, that in, in there is this sense in which sometimes the 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 um, sort of uh, accepting of our being significant in in the realm of God's order of things, we put everything merely into the human, 
Yeah. And therefore, we don't understand that the human is placed within a setting and that that setting has its own significance and depth. And it's deeper connected to, to God as well. So even in the fall, I guess that's where the, the, the horror of this, this kind of arises, because we don't know the nature of that deeper, that deeper reality impacting us. So therefore, it can either be threatening um, or you know, something that we're in conflict with. Um, it's sort of like the, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the cat who, you know, hears something in the house. <laughs> the right. first reaction is kind of, <laughs> I'm going to defend this place, but it's also startled. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, right. You know, the, the other thing about this is, you know, going back to Isaiah, the idea yeah. of God is holy, 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 which could be translated as the holiest one. Right. The supreme whole of, of the supremacy of holiness. Um, what that is saying is that God is utterly and totally different and utterly and totally other from everything else. And that's said by by a group of really weird dudes. That's right. That's okay. Right, that's right. So, and so Lovecraft would have felt right at home with right. all those weird so, dudes. So, so <laughs> it, what what Lovecraft is picking up is you know to, to come off of what Tom said, he's picking up on an, on something that is genuinely real. The ultimate ground of reality is something that is totally transcendent and totally other and totally beyond anything that we can comprehend. What he is missing is that notion of relationship, personhood, love, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and so it is threatening when you are not in proper communion right. and you are in a place of, of revolt against. Yeah, the, yeah and, it, and his life was a very sad life. Yeah. I mean, no one, no one, even his most dedicated fans, would want to live his life. Yeah. And anyway, uh, this brings me to sort of how Lewis contrasts with Lovecraft, because Lewis is almost the anti-Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And I, as I think I noted earlier, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder whether Lewis had actually read Lovecraft. I have this dream. <laughs> I, I think I mentioned that I asked the Wade Center whether or not Lovecraft they had some evidence that Lewis had read Lovecraft just because there seemed to be so much sort of so much in the way in terms of uh, you know the way, the way Lewis's stories seemed to answer Lovecraft's stories but they couldn't find anything so I have this dream of going to the kilns <laughs> going to Oxford finding some evidence that Lewis had like bought weird tales and he'd got a stash of them under the bed and he had underlined a lot of stuff and but anyway <laughs> Even if he didn't, there is a marvelous uh, sort of contrast that Lewis provides because with Lewis, there is otherness, but not so the otherness at the creaturely level, and that's what we're talking about here. Because I think what we're saying is that Lovecraft was ascribing the otherness of God to some created thing, and that was the problem. So, but with Lewis, there is the otherness, you know, when he thinks, of, when he speaks of Aslan, he's not a tame lion, and so forth. But uh, there's also a kind of, a, sort of an, an affirmation of, of commonness, even with the otherness. Mm -hmm. So when you think about Lewis's stories, when you think about the Chronicles of Narnia, you think about the Space Trilogy. The Space Trilogy is a fascinating example, because in the Space Trilogy, what you have is Lewis, you know, has his character Ransom actually go to Mars, go to Venus, and discover other peoples. And those other peoples are different, and yet this, there's something that is common. And there is an attraction there. 
Yeah. And th- that traction evokes a different response. And I, I think that's, and you said it earlier maybe with aesthetic, it's a different aesthetic going on because one of them recognizes that strangeness. They both then recognize that strangeness, but one of them is, is kind of, um, doesn't interpret it in a healthy and positive way, whereas in Lewis you start to see there is a, a, a growing familiarity, even in that difference, that allows for a different interpretation of that otherness. Right. Yeah, the, um, one of the things that I've always found intriguing in the Space Trilogy is in Out of the Silent Planet, there is what I could only describe in Earth terms as a shark hunt. Where this is on Mars. On Mars, yep. where the people th- that are inhabiting the area, there's this creature that's coming yeah. up this river, yeah. and they go out and they they go and hunt it, and one of them dies. Yes, and so. Lewis sees this as being a good and positive thing. Yeah, right. Um, as you know, that this is a this is a noble, courageous valuable effort that they are doing and even though the person died he died well yeah it is an absolutely fascinating thing that in an unfallen world you Lewis envisions that kind of thing yeah and then if I remember correctly I think it's a harass is the name of the creatures not yeah they're kind of like walrus type creatures very large (laughs) fuzzy beings but they they're poets (laughs) right and they make a poem about this hunt. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, mar- it's a marvelous scene. Yeah. I, I may have had gotten that wrong in terms of the name of the creature. Yeah, the, the creature that was hunted was a Thnakri. Yeah, okay, so the, I was thinking of the hunters. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. So anyway, uh, getting back to this uh, this issue with um, the otherness, there's, this, there's, a, there's an example of how this can work in Lewis in a way that honors the otherness of other worlds and other creatures, yet at the same time uh, allows for an appreciation of a, of, of a common sort of under, sort of uh, apprehension of beauty and goodness it, it, is this marvelous scene from the Silver Chair. Hmm. So in the Silver Chair, what you have is, of course, you've got uh, some human beings, you know, Prince William, Jill, Eustace. And then you have this creature called Puddle Glum, and they're underneath the surface of Narnia, under, in, underground, and they escape uh, this evil witch, and they are uh, sort of making their trek back to the surface, and as they do so, they come across a marvelous hidden world, and this is a quote from The Silver Chair, and this is a description of that hidden world. The hidden world, by the name, is, uh, by the way, is named Bism. We learn that in the course of the story. But here's the description of that world uh, in the silver chair. Quote, They dismounted from their horses and came to the edge and looked down into it. A strong heat smote up into their faces, mixed with a smell which was quite unlike any they had ever smelled. It was rich, sharp, exciting, and made you sneeze. The depth of the chasm was so bright that at first it dazzled their eyes and they could see nothing. When they got used to it, they thought they could make out a river of fire. And on the banks of that river, what seemed to be fields and groves of unbearable hot brilliance. Though they were dim compared to the river, 
there were blues, reds, greens, and whites all jumbled together, and a very, uh, all jumbled together, colon, a very good stained glass window with a tropical sun staring straight through at midday might have something of the same effect. Hmm. So what you have here, of course, is a world that they can look into and be attracted to, but would kill them <laughs> if they actually went into it. And, and that's Lewis's point. Hmm. Lewis's point is otherness is real, that there are other worlds, that there are other environments, but those environs are created by the same God that made our world. We were made for our world. They were made for their world. We can look into their world and, and appreciate it. They can look into our world and, and potentially appreciate it. So we're not utterly alien. There's something common, but at the same time, there is a boundary yeah. that can't be crossed. And they're all good. Yeah, and they're all good. Yeah. Which, which is another thing I think that sometimes people who reject uh, the Christian faith or even the Western tradition fail to appreciate, and that is when we speak of truth, we're not speaking in the sort of reductionistic way that people are assuming we are. There is a, there's room for manifestations and, and for variety and for difference in this. And yet, it's interesting when you mentioned the very word, thank you, um, the very word truth, because in many cases it actually brings with it all of the otherness that actually can sometimes frighten someone, yeah. and therefore be a truth itself brings with it this kind of otherness to which the reaction is, get away from me. <laughs> right, right. Maybe, maybe the thing that repels Christians about, or people about Christianity, I should say, is the otherness. Maybe because within Christianity, otherness it sort, of be, it sort of calls forth moral response, you know, a moral response, uh, an oughtness. There's an oughtness to, whereas with Lovecraft, there's no oughtness. Right. Otherness without oughtness. Yeah. Whereas with Christianity, there's otherness with oughtness. Well, I want to sort of just wrap it with one more example. And this has to do with this very thing, the idea of boundaries. For, for, for Lewis, boundaries were something that needed to be honored. And uh, because of that, there, there is this need to uh, respect sort of the rules of, that, are, that govern a particular world. So when you enter into another space, you, you don't just enter in and sort of just you know, lay to waste everything you see. What you do is you actually uh, seek out the norms and the morals. This, it's a sort of affirmation what we've been talking about with creation is that there are kinds and there are ends right. and differing kinds and differing ends have, have their significance within the created order that ought to be uh, reverenced um, or, or justice done to. Right. So, you know, speaking to this particular point, it's often the case that people who are quote, progressivist or, or secular in outlook, will attribute to the Christian faith a kind of sort of cultural imperialism that uh, led to all sorts of terrible things uh, throughout the course of human history. 
kind of missing uh, the actual reality on the ground, which in, in some cases was quite the reverse. That's right. Where you had Christian missionaries sort of defending uh, native populations against cultural imperialism. That's right. But uh, I think that what you have here in the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is an example of what I'm getting at. Because in that, at the end of that story, you've got this, this situation where you've got the Dawn Treader getting closer and closer to the edge of the world, and as they do get closer and closer to the edge of the world, the, the environment is altered and worlds are in view of each other. So let me give you an example of what I'm getting at. So I'm going to read a little more from my, my, my essay, and this will be my last thing I have to say. As the ship draws near the edge of the world, this is from the essay, the waters grow so clear that Lucy can see the bottom of the sea, many fathoms down. As she looks, she sees the shadow of the ship passing over the underwater civili uh, an underwater civilization peopled by beautiful but fierce inhabitants riding upon gigantic seahorses. These people in turn see Lucy and the Dawn Treader, but rather than wave up at her like friendly Polynesians, they shake their spears at her and challenge. Here we see an aspect of the alien that completely escapes Lovecraft. The underwater kingdom Lucy sees is not for her. It is none of her business. If she had dived into the waters and attempted to enter that realm, she would either have been drowned or been killed by the mere people she so admires. Lovecraft would have nodded approvingly at that, but there is no doubt that the mere people are Aslan's creations and that the realm they inhabit has been given to them. It is not alien to them, it is their home. It is the Dawn Treader and its crew that are alien. They are the threat from the outside. And from the mere people's perspective, we can imagine why the Dawn Treader could be perceived as a threat. It passes over the sun, and it contains strange air-breathing creatures uh, that are as strange to the mere people as the mere people are to Lucy. For, Luce, uh, for Lewis, the boundaries separating the worlds are not uh, only practically impossible in some cases, they are also morally, morally invaluable in all cases. Even when material conditions permit passage from one world to another, moral limits still govern tourists. The Pevensey children can only enter Narnia by the will of Aslan. And whether the passage to an alien world is made possible by good magic, as in the Narnia stories, or by science in the space trilogy, intruders are expected to be respectful upon entering and to learn the rules that govern it and submit to them. So, from Lewis's perspective, alien worlds, great. Different, even different rules on the ground, different customs and so forth, great. But the same God gave that world its meaning and being as gave our world its meaning and being, and there is something that they share in common. Yeah. Any thoughts? I think that that um, I think that the the contrast between Lewis and the, and uh, Lovecraft on this is is really interesting. The only thing I thought they had in common was the first letter of their last name. <laughs> um, but but having said that, I think that the, that there's really a lot to to uh, to see here in in Lewis's. You know, in a lot of ways, when you take a look at Lovecraft's world. 
it is a reflection of the world of early scientism, yes. which is a very reductionistic way of looking at the world. Um, you know, I've, I've told my classes pretty regularly that if you could bring a medieval person forward to our society, he would say, you guys know a lot, but you understand nothing. <laughs> because they were able to see things on multiple levels simultaneously, whereas we've reduced things to just simply one dimension. In which uh, Lewis, as someone who is very familiar with the world you're talking about, was able actually to bring back into right. that. Yes. that. It, 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 exactly. So whereas Lovecraft can look at the world and only see it in one dimension, the other has to be terrifying. It has to be, yes. it has to be dangerous. It has to be something... Because it is alien, it has to be hostile. Yes. Yes. Lewis is capable of seeing a world that is much deeper, much richer, much more multivalent, and therefore can envision a world where the other is completely alien, is dangerous, is deadly to you if you trespass on its boundaries like the Mer people, but that is nonetheless good. And that is, that's an utterly remarkable thing that he did. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I think he, he holds together, uh, Lewis holds together all the dimensions of the Christian vision, which is the goodness of creation, the fallenness of it, and yet the reaffirmation of it in redemption in such a way that the goodness and the terror and the evil and all those things are properly put in their places and yet not given the final say on the goodness of all things and the redemption of all things. And I think that's the big difference. You, you have uh, you know, antagonism with Lovecraft eventually, threat, um, and, and really you have to posit yourself over against everything else, which is frightening, versus someone who can actually find their way within the order of things, um, recognizing also that evil is there, but yet providence is there, and, and redemption too, which is Lewis's uh, vision. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, guys, uh, for, for putting up with my talk and my, my sharing. And this is a, also a fun conversation. This is something, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I'll risk repeating myself. This is, this is something I hope to write on again. Uh, I've got an, an idea for a book uh, on this theme, and we'll see what, whether or not that ever comes to pass or ever comes to fruition. But uh, in the meantime, uh, we're glad to have you with us, and thank you for listening in on another episode of the uh, Theology Podcast, and we'll uh, connect with you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.